God's Word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to our hearts. God alone can do that. The greatest preacher in the world cannot cause that to happen. So let's go before our God in prayer. Lord, we come before your word, and we are a people who need to be taught and corrected at times and reproved and trained in righteousness. Humanly speaking, uh, the flesh cannot do that. Only the Spirit can. And so we plead with you, send the Holy Spirit in power to give us clarity and understanding and attention and call our hearts to greater faith in Jesus Christ and repentance where it is needed. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you take out your copy of God's Word? Turn to the very last book, to the book of Revelation, and then turn one page back. That's the easiest way to tell you how to get to Jude. Jude's only one page long, and and so it's a little bit harder to find. If you have only been at this church, if you only came within the last six and a half years, which I think is more than half of this group, That means that since you've been here on Sunday mornings, we've actually only completed studies of two books. We spent about five years in in a verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Luke, and then we spent just over a year in the book of Hebrews. Well, starting this morning, we're going to start a verse-by-verse study of Jude, and with only 25 brief verses, we should cover the whole book in only about six weeks. That is a record for me. Don't mistake the brevity of this book for irrelevance. It's an extraordinary book, and it's extraordinarily relevant for the times in which we are living. You're going to read through it. If you haven't already, you're going to say, this could have been written yesterday, and it needs to be preached today. Jude speaks about about false prophets who, as he says, are creeping about. That's a good word for it. There's always an effort upon the part of the evil one to creep into the church with false teaching, to dilute or to add to the gospel. He talks about, Jude talks about how to live the Christian life in the midst of a wicked culture. And he calls us both to persevere in the faith and to contend for the faith. I think you're going to be really greatly blessed by this study of Jude. Now, I think you'll be doubly blessed if you'll read the passages in advance before each Sunday. In fact, you would do well to read the book at least once a week. It takes about five minutes to read through these 25 verses. Now, if you want to be triple blessed, memorize the book. That's what several of us are aiming to do. I'm also, this is something we haven't done before, but I'm aiming to send out every Sunday after the sermon study questions for you to discuss uh, as a family or with friends after the service, uh, particularly can be helpful during family worship. And so that's one reason, visitors, if you fill out one of those visitor cards, we'll make sure that your email address is added to that list of uh, emails that are going to be sent out this afternoon. Now this morning, I'm going to read just two verses. It's the introduction. It's very simple, but it is loaded with importance for us. This is Jude 1 and 2. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. 
Well, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Who are you? Now, in many parts of the world, that's merely asking somebody's name. Who are you? But we live in the South, and so when somebody asks you, who are you, especially in small towns like Beaufort, when somebody asks, who are you, they're not just asking your name. They're asking your name, but they're asking you, well, where are you from? And who's your dad? And who is his dad? And who is his dad? And what do you do for a living? And all of that, all of that is packed into this question of who are you. It's really the question of what is your identity? What makes you, you? Well, Jude starts off the letter by giving us his identity, and he tells us first, very simply, his name, Jude. Jude was, in the first century, a very common name in Hebrew. It meant praise. It's the shortened form of either Judah or Judas. So, like Ben is a shortened form of Benjamin, or Lily is a shortened form of Lillian, Jude is a shortened form of Judah or Judas. Now, can you imagine why somebody in the first century with the name Judas might want to shorten their name? Yeah, it's certainly easy to understand. So he says Jude. He identifies himself as Jude. But the second thing he says is really interesting. He, he tells us he is a servant of Jesus Christ. He's really saying, you know, that's all you really need to know about me. It's very informative in terms of how he sees himself because there's actually a lot more that he could have told us about himself. This Jude was a well-known leader in the church in the first century. And he does tell us a little bit more about himself at the end of that first line. He he says he's the brother of James. Now, James was also a well-known leader in the church in Jerusalem. But I need you to follow me here. So you've got Jude and you've got James. They're two brothers. We know from Matthew 13, 55, that Jesus had a brother named James and another brother named Judas. So Jesus had these two, we'll call them half-brothers. They were his brothers according to the flesh, James and Judas, or we could call them James and Jude for short. We know from Paul's writings, 1 Corinthians 9 verse 5, that some of Jesus' half-brothers according to the flesh were leaders in the early church. So if we connect all those dots, there's very little doubt that this Jude is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Now think about that for a second. If you were the half-brother of Jesus Christ, if you had that earthly connection to Jesus and you're writing to other Christians, wouldn't you name drop a little bit? You know, wouldn't you say, hey, I'm Jude. You know who I am. I'm the guy that grew up with Jesus. Don't you think I kind of ought to have a little bit of authority? I'm kind of a big deal. I grew up in the house with him. You ought to trust me, shouldn't you? No, what does he say? Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, I think there's a couple of reasons he identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ rather than the brother of Jesus Christ. For one thing, he saw for whatever period of time he lived in the home with his half-brother according to the flesh, he saw Jesus' example. Jesus was a servant. The creator And Lord of the universe once adorned himself in the manner of a slave and washed his disciples' feet. That's servant's work. And today, this is still true. If we want evidence that somebody is a follower of Jesus Christ, they too take the form of a servant. 
And so Jude refers to himself here as a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, perhaps another reason he didn't name drop here, like many of us would be apt to do, is because he understood that that familial, fleshly relationship didn't entitle him to anything more than any other believer has. See, no fleshly relationship can save us. And I want to be clear on this to our covenant children, the children of believers. You have many benefits of being raised in the church, being raised with family worship, and all those things. And yet, you too must come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. You too must trust in him. You don't ride to heaven on the coattails of your parents' faith. You too must be drawn to him. And so Jude understood that his familial relationship with Jesus, his fleshly relationship, did not entitle him to anything more than any other believer has. And and I want to flesh that out just a little bit. See, Just as he was Jesus' half-brother according to the flesh, you and I are adopted into the family of God. And we are Jesus' brothers according to the Spirit. Uh, Romans identifies us as heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. He is our elder brother. And so Jude actually understands if he just referred to himself by his fleshly relationship, that's a downgrade from what you and I and he have spiritually by being adopted into the household of God and being brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. So that's who the author is, Jude, half-brother and servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James. We don't know who the audience was. It could have been to many churches in this period of time. So when was it written? Well, he wrote it sometime in the late 60s AD, we believe, and that's That's significant because somebody might say, you know, Jude may have just been a follower of Jesus to capitalize on some of his brother's fame. Well, Jesus was famous, but if you think about what Christians were enduring in the 60s AD, that was not the kind of fame you wanted. 64 AD, there was a fire in Rome. Uh, Nero was the emperor. Nero was a quirky man. Nero also hated Christians very much. In fact, there's speculation that that Nero himself started the fire in Rome. Much of Rome burnt, but Nero blamed the fire on Christians. Part of the reason he hated Christians was because they refused to, to include him in the pantheon of gods that they would worship. In fact, they would only worship one god. And so Nero persecuted Christians heavily. The time, uh, the late 60s AD was not a popular time. Nobody became a Christian for sake of earthly gain. They became Christians because they were utterly convinced of the truth of the gospel. So Jude wrote this, we believe, in the late 60s AD in a time that it was costly to be a Christian. So we've, we've talked about who, we've talked about when. Why did he write the book? Well, verses 3 and 4 make clear he would love to have written the book just to talk about the gospel, how wonderful the gospel is. But he says, but there's a problem. And that problem is that false teachers are creeping into the church. And that's a deadly thing. That's a dangerous thing because they're deceiving people. They're deceiving people both by what they teach and by how they live. And they're leading some people astray. And those people are departing from the faith. Now, I told you this book could have been written today, couldn't it? 
because the exact same thing happens all the time in churches today. We, we live amidst a culture of false teachers who claim under the guise of secularism and through media and through all sorts of different avenues, they attack the church and seek to draw people away from the Christian faith. And Jude writes this letter to equip the church to stand firm in the face of false teachers. And if the church needed it in the late 60s AD, you and I need it in the year 2023, don't we? We're going to focus on that next week, those false teachers. But for the balance of our time together, I want you to see how Jude sees the Christian life through the lens of God. Or we'll say it differently, how Jude understands the Christian's identity. And we're going to focus on the latter part of verse 1 where he says, To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Christ Jesus. Now that is an awesome statement. We could spend months just on those three uh, identifiers right there. But Jude wants us to understand Our identity, our sense of who you are, who I am, not in terms of earthly gain, not in terms of of fleshly relationships, but in terms of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And so we're going to look at that today. The identity of the Christian as one who is called, who is beloved, and who is kept. First, those who are called. The Greek reads, the called ones, to the called ones. Some translations, you may be using a translation that reflects that better. The English Standard Version just says to the called. The root of that word is ecclesia, the called out ones. It's the word that's most commonly translated as church. Now, the authors of the New Testament love that language of called. Take take your Bibles and look with me just at Romans 1 for a moment. We could turn to almost any letter in the New Testament, and we would find use of that word called over and over again, but Romans particularly uses it. Look with me at Romans 1, verse 1. Paul says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, and then look at verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, and then verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints are to belong to Jesus Christ. The reason the scriptures love the terminology of called is because it shows the initiation of our salvation has been taken by God himself. He's the mover in our salvation. We cannot cause ourselves to be called. We are called because God has called us. The first thing we need to understand here from Jude's perspective is the identity of the Christian is one who has been called by God. That's a deeply theological statement, by the way, in terms of what it means to be called. See, when God calls, something happens. Just think about creation. When God speaks, whatever God commands happens. So Genesis 1, verse 4, in the creation account, God says, let there be light. And what happened? There was light. God's call is effectual. It accomplishes what he intends. I can give the outward call. God has chosen to use the the means of preaching for the growth of the saints, the equipping of of the saints, but I cannot incline anybody's heart to receive it. 
Only the Lord can do that. When God calls, he accomplishes what he intends. And that's what Jude has in mind. It's not just, when he says called, it's not just a matter of terminology. It's a matter of identity. I want you to think about a couple of ways that those who have been called are utterly transformed in terms of who we are. First, we're called from death to life. Think about the story of Lazarus. Lazarus died. His body is decaying in the grave. In fact, one of our favorite lines from the old King James translation, somebody says, behold, he stinketh. I have a house with three boys. We use that phrase a lot in our house. And Jesus calls out to Lazarus, and Lazarus raises from the dead at Jesus' command. In fact, it's often said if Jesus had not specifically said, Lazarus, arise, all of the dead would have arisen because Jesus' word is so powerful. And he calls out, Lazarus, arise, and the dead come to life. Now, it's, it's a, certainly, it's a miracle, uh, an extraordinary display of Jesus' power, but it's also a picture of salvation. It's a picture of what happens when God calls us. Look with me at Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, Paul is telling us the spiritual state that we were once in and the spiritual state to which we have been called if we belong to Jesus Christ. So look with me, starting at verse 1. And you, this is you, this is us, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All right, so Paul's saying, here's your death certificate. Every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth is spiritually stillborn. Now, you may think, I... I never saw myself as dead. Well, dead people don't realize they're dead, do they? Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's a, a very theological explanation of God's call from death to life. It's just like Lazarus was called out to, and Jesus broke the chains of, of physical death. When you are called by the Holy Spirit, he breaks the chains of spiritual death and makes us alive. And so to be called by God means we've been brought from death to life. To be called also means we're brought from darkness into light. 1 Peter 2 verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What does it mean to walk in darkness? Um, a couple of weeks ago, I got up in the middle of the night. It, it, it was still dark. I walked across the room on my way out the door, and my eyes were barely open, and I stubbed my toe on the door frame. And you understand how bad that hurts, don't you? I'm so glad you can't lose your salvation. 
but I was walking in darkness and I faced the consequences. It's not the kind of darkness Peter's talking about here. It's not a sort of benign, innocent darkness. Peter's actually talking about people who run from the light. Have have you ever been doing yard work and there's a a piece of wood out in the yard and it's been there for maybe a couple years and you flip it over and all sorts of animals that hate the light scurry into darkness? That's actually what Peter's telling us, is that our natural state before we are called by God is to scurry away, to run away from the light. Some of you know the famous atheist Stephen Hawking, uh, who died a few years ago. He once made the claim that faith is a fairy tale for people afraid of the dark. I'm sure he was very proud of that comment. Well, the brilliant Oxford mathematician John Lennox, who was a believer, responded, atheism is a fairy tale for those afraid of the light. He's exactly right. Uh, Because of sin, we are naturally afraid of our lives and our hearts being exposed. And so when the light shines into our life, we scurry. And if God did not call us from death to life, From darkness to light, we would still scatter at the first sign of light. Many do. That's why, if you've ever noticed this, if you're dialoguing with many atheists, they will say, on the one hand, they will deny the existence of God and express great disdain for the God whom they say doesn't exist. It's not that there is a such thing as an atheist. Just read Romans 1. There's no such thing as atheists. There are just people who deny the truth of the God who is light. And so, as believers, we have been called into the light, and the light is good because it is the light of Jesus Christ. And then third, we are called out of alienation and into fellowship with Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.9, Paul says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, what's implicit there, what we can infer from that statement is, Once you were not in fellowship with Jesus, once you were alienated from him, Romans uses the language of hostile towards him, but when God called you, taking you from death to life, darkness to light, you were taken from hostility and alienation to love and fellowship with Jesus Christ. Now just think about that for a moment. Christian, every moment of your life is lived in the beautiful presence of Jesus Christ. R.C. Sproul used to say, we live life quorum Deo, before the face of God. The believer alone has the awesome privilege in this world and the next of spending our lives in the presence of Jesus Christ. You and I would do really well, wouldn't we, to remind ourselves every time we wake up and every time we leave the house and in everybody we meet and every conversation we have, I am this moment, quorum Deo. I am living in the presence of God. Why do we get to do that? Because God called us. See, all of this, this language of calling from death to life, of course, we don't call ourselves out of death to life. We don't call ourselves out of darkness. We don't call ourselves out of hostility. If it were up to us, we would choose those things forever and ever. But God works upon our hearts sovereignly by calling us out of those things. 
And it completely changes who we are. We go from dead to alive. We go from loving the darkness to loving the light. We go from alienation to fellowship with the God of the universe. And that means, beloved, hear me on this, there are only two kinds of people in the world. Those who are yet in the darkness and death and alienation and those who have been called to life and light and fellowship. We can take away every other category, and there's no middle category. There's no almost Christian. It is all one or the other, those who have been called and those who have not. Now, that explains a lot, doesn't it? Have you ever been talking to someone, if you're a believer, have you ever been talking to someone about the gospel, and you explain it, and they just don't get it? And you want to say, how do you not get it? It's all over the pages of Scripture. It's all over creation. How do you not get it? The answer is, they've never been drawn into saving faith by the work of the Spirit. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells the story of William Wilberforce, and I hope you know the name William Wilberforce. He was a great evangelical. He was the one who fought for decades in England as a member of Parliament to put an end to slavery in the late 17 and early 1800s. He had a very close friend, William Pitt. Um, He was a great politician. Pitt rose to be the prime minister of England. Wilberforce uh, was greatly concerned about Pitt's spiritual condition. He, uh, at the same time, Wilberforce loved a preacher named Richard Cecil. Wilberforce thought, if I can just get Pitt to come hear Cecil, surely he will get it. And so Wilberforce invited, and some of you have been diligent with friends and family, inviting and inviting and inviting, and finally you just wear them down, and that is okay. And Wilberforce wore Pitt down, and Pitt came to hear Cecil. And as Wilberforce sat under Cecil's preaching, as he expounded the glory of the kingdom of God and the the privileges of the children of God, Wilberforce was so ravished by the sermon, and he's thinking to himself, there's no way. Pitt's going to leave this room unconverted. There's no way that this, he can sit under this sermon and not be powerfully transformed. Well, Pitt was, according to Martin Lloyd-Jones, an abler man. He was a smarter man than Wilberforce. So surely he got it, right? Well, at the end of the service, they walk out, and Wilberforce is dying to hear what Pitt thought, but he didn't have to wait long. They get outside, and Pitt turns to Wilberforce and says, I have no idea what that man was going on and on about. I didn't understand a word. What was that? Do you remember a time you felt like that? I can remember before I was a believer, I I started visiting a church at age 17, I started going to Bible study, and I was some hybrid of utterly bored and completely confused. But you know what really bothered me about it? There were people there that seemed to get it. Not only get it intellectually, but they seemed to love it. And that bugged me to death. Why do I not get it? Why do I not love it? And it remained that way until God called me to himself. I wonder if that's the case for some of you. Maybe you, you, this is the first time you've ever heard the gospel. Maybe this is the thousandth time. You hear, 
the preaching of the word. You see other people give affirmation to it. But to you, it's all nonsense. And it's not that you're intellectually incapable, but you have never come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if light bulbs are going off in your mind and you're thinking, well, how can I make myself called if God is the one who calls? Let me encourage you that if you right now are realizing your spiritual condition and maybe for the first time ever acknowledging, I'm not sure that I know the God that he's talking about. That's a great sign that the Holy Spirit may actually be working in your heart to call you. You may not have a radical conversion moment, but you'll start to realize that the things that were once dark and confusing and mysterious and uninteresting suddenly come alive with beauty and truth and relevance to your heart. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit calls you. Uh, There's this great story of a young teenager who went to church week after week after week with his family, and week after week after week, he was ostensibly bored by the preaching of the word. He could not wait for it to be over so he could be gone. You cannot imagine a teenager like that, can you? But one Sunday, the preacher noticed the young man was paying attention and his disposition was different. He, he wasn't bored. He seemed enthralled. And he didn't just come to morning worship. He came back for evening worship. And it happened that Sunday and the next Sunday and the next Sunday. So finally, the preacher goes up to the young man and says, What gives? What has happened to you? You used to want nothing to do with the preaching. Now you're here morning and evening and you're fixed upon the word. What changed? And the young man said, Nothing changed in me. You finally got interesting, Pastor. That's exactly how he experienced. He did not understand what had happened as God had changed him, had called him from darkness to light, from death to life, from alienation to fellowship with Jesus Christ. That's what happens when God calls a man. Has that ever happened to you? Has God changed your heart so that the things that were once boring nonsense are now light and life for you. We're going to come back to that in a few minutes. The Christian identity is one first who has been called. Second, the Christian is beloved by God the Father. Why me? People often ask that question when they're suffering. Why me, God? But you know, if you're a believer... You've probably asked the same question. Why me? Why would you call me of all people? You know, there are many in this room who uh, have siblings who are unbelievers. Y'all were raised in the same home. You had the same experiences. They have wandered far away, and you have been drawn. You have been called to Jesus Christ. Why me? Why does God save some and not others? You know, that's actually a, tr- a, a, a sure sign that somebody is a believer is that they're amazed that God would save them of all people. I can't, why me, Lord? Why would you save me? I have nothing in me worth saving. That's a good question. On what grounds does God call some and not others? If God's call is effectual, It accomplishes what he intends, and there are some unbelievers, then we have to deduce, and Scripture agrees with this, that God calls some and not others. 
On what grounds does God call? Is it because you were more righteous than that sibling? Or you're, you're a quicker learner? There, there's even been studies about whether there's a religiosity gene in our DNA. Well, this passage tells us the basis of why God called you. It was solely based on his love. The Old Testament teaches us that with Israel. Look with me at Deuteronomy 7 for a moment. Have you ever thought about why, why Israel? Why did God call Israel? Of all the nations on earth, why did God choose Israel? Was it because they were wise, powerful, obedient, and lovable? How about D, none of the above? They were none of those things. Look at Deuteronomy 7, starting at verse 6. This is God's manifesto as to why Israel. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. That's the same language Peter used in 1 Peter 2. You're a treasured possession. Interesting. Out of all the peoples on earth, all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. In other words, why Israel? Because God chose to. Well, nothing's changed by the New Testament. Look with me at Ephesians 1. It is impossible for me to have enough excitement in my voice to capture Paul's joy in writing Ephesians 1. I'm going to do my best, but I can't get there. Ephesians 1, starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Why me? Because God in his sovereignty and according to his own good purposes before the foundation of the world, chose to set his love upon me. And for the life of me, I can't understand why. I sure wouldn't have done it. I often think the reason he did it before I was born was because if he waited till after I was born, he never would have chosen me. The grounds that on which God calls us is not our lovability or our goodness, but his love for us. That's what Jude is saying. That's what Ephesians 1 is saying. We are beloved in God. Just revel in that for a moment. Jude 1 is the only place in the New Testament that we find that exact phrase, beloved in God the Father. And Jude is telling us, that as we rest in and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, as he's offered in the gospel, our identity is we are beloved by God. How do, how do you, what do we compare that kind of love to? You know, all love in this world is, it's really frail, fleeting love, isn't it? Even as much as a parent can love a child, 
It's imperfect love. It's flawed love. I want you to see what God compares his love for us to. Look with me at John 17. The only comparison to explain how much God loves us is how much God loves his own son, Jesus Christ. It's a big statement. In fact, if I can't back this up, you get to call the heresy police. Because that's a big statement to say that God loves believers as much as he loves his own son. Look at John 17, verse 26, the last verse of the chapter. Jesus is telling us we are co-sharers in the eternal love of the Father and the Son. Verse 26, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Because Jesus Christ is in us. The great love of the Father towards Jesus rests upon us. How much does God love us? It's not cheap, flimsy love. It's the same love with which he loves his son. That's incredible. And that prayer that Jesus is praying there, it has been answered and is being answered. The, whole, the heavenly father does not love you less than he loves Jesus Christ. Revel in the depth of the father's love for you. That's the Christian's identity, isn't it? That we are beloved of God. And it's so hard to remember that, isn't it? We, we forget so easily because uh, we really think God will love us as long as we make ourselves lovable. Isn't that kind of our default idea? You know, if I could get rid of this sin, then God would really love me. Or if I were more useful to him, God would really love me. We think that there's some idealized version of us out there that if we could just get to that place where we were that holy, that godly, that good, that useful, then he would really love us. God does not love you because of who you are. God loves you because of who Jesus is. And if you are in union with Christ, called by the Father, uh, called and beloved by the Father, then when he looks upon us, he sees the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. God doesn't love you because of who you are or what you deserve. In fact, if you were a thousand times better than you are, you still would not be one ounce more deserving of God's love. All of it comes to you not because of who you are, but because of who he is. There's a third thing this passage teaches us about the Christian's identity, and that is we are kept for Jesus Christ. We see that at the end of verse 1, kept for Jesus Christ. What does it mean? It means if you belong to Jesus, you are being safeguarded for heaven. It's an amazing statement Jesus makes in John 10. He says, speaking of us, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. It's incredible, isn't it? And then he goes on as if that wasn't enough, and he says, you know, my Father, who is greater than all, 
has given them to me, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. That's talking about us. We are being kept for heaven. In fact, if you are listening in Ephesians chapter 1, it says that he already has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It is ours. All of heaven is ours. Our spot is being held by Jesus Christ. Nobody who puts their faith in Jesus Christ, no matter how weak their faith is, can ever be lost because God can lose none of his own. But the tense of this verb not only indicates we are kept, but also in the Greek it indicates we are being kept. We are being kept in the faith. He is holding on to us not just for heaven, but he is holding on to us in the faith today, not letting us fall away. This is speaking of the believer's eternal security. And that is a doctrine that is often abused in the church because oftentimes what people say is, okay, if you walk the aisle, if you pray the sinner's prayer, if you come forward in an altar call, if you profess faith, then you're safe forever, no matter what you do. Now there's a sense in which that's true, If it's a true profession of faith, you will have possession of faith, and God will take possession of you. He will keep you. But for somebody whom he has truly called, he will keep you in the faith in this life. He will preserve you from falling away. You can't lose your salvation, so what about somebody who falls away? Well, they never had it in the first place. Those who are called and beloved are being kept for Christ Jesus. You know, the believer may have and will have seasons of difficulty, seasons of, of spiritual apathy, maybe even seasons of believing error. But those who are called and beloved in the Father will be kept to the end. Jude is saying this against the backdrop of some who have entered the church who outwardly appeared to be believers, but Jude tells us in verse 4, they are ungodly people who pervert grace into sensuality. In other words, grace gives them an excuse to sin and by their rebellious lives deny Jesus Christ. Now that could have been written yesterday. In fact, let me give you an example of this that I read this week. I learned this week there are false teachers today whose job it is to help people leave the faith. They call themselves faith transition coaches. That's a job today. Let me share with you what one of them said, uh, speaking of their own, what she called a faith transition. We would call it apostasy. She said, when others tell me that the reason I left the church was simply because I didn't know the one true God, the truth is I did. The problem was that in order for me to keep believing in him, I had to keep abandoning myself. So instead, I chose me for the first time. It's exactly what Jude is is talking about, and it sounds good. I chose me. Disney's going to make that movie soon if they haven't already. But that's what Jude's talking about, people who rebel against God and say, I am going to be my God. If you're a believer, you are being kept and will be kept in the faith. You won't be led astray. You won't fall away fully and finally because God is keeping you. 
You know, Jude starts with that, kept for Christ Jesus. Look at the end, Jude 24. It's that benediction that I love. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Now, let's stop there. Do you get what image Jude's presenting? It's the image of a wedding. A father walking his bride down the aisle to give her, to present her to the groom. And there she is in radiant gown. And he presents her to the groom. Paul uses the same language in Ephesians 5. He says in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she, the church, might be holy and without blemish. Jesus is keeping us in the faith in order to present us to himself as his holy bride. Isn't that awesome? It's an awesome sense of identity. I am being kept. No matter what goes on in this world, I am being kept until the day when I will be presented alongside all of you and all the saints to Jesus Christ, the perfect bridegroom, and we will live with him in heaven forever on that eternal honeymoon. There's nothing on earth that can compare to that, is there? You know, we would do really well to spend less time thinking about our identity in this world, who we are, what people think of us, making a name for ourselves, making uh, our reputation great, and do a lot better if we spent more time thinking about what is true of us before God. We are called, beloved, and kept. Most of us tend to build our identity on things that can crumble in just a moment. Our appearance, our wealth, our reputation, all of it can go away. Our great need as Christians is to learn to see ourself. Who are you? Not in terms of earthly things like Jude could have done. I'm the earthly brother of Jesus. But in terms of what Jesus has done, called beloved kept. The great temptation for us is to look at the outside rather than paying attention to what God says is truly true about us. I want you to see something amazing. If we can learn to, to understand ourselves and our identity in terms of the way God sees us, I want you to see these three blessings give us three promises right here at the end of the text. Verse 2, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. If I can understand my identity as one who is called, beloved, and kept, then I can understand that I am living all of life under the mercy, peace, and love of my sovereign God. That's incredibly reorienting, isn't it? It it transforms everything about us. Such kindness is, ought to compel us towards gratitude, shouldn't it? If we realize what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, 
what should we do? We should praise him and live all of life, not for the trinkets and baubles and silly stuff of this world, but for the one who has loved us so much and so well, not because we're worthy, but because he is worthy. We should live our lives for him. Well, how do we apply this text? Just a few things. One, a word about servanthood. Jude certainly could have boasted in his rights as a leader of the church, as brother of Jesus, but he calls himself a doulos, a slave. You know, some of us are glad to be Christians until God calls us to do something we don't want to do. That's when servanthood kicks in. When we conform, when we bend our will to the will of our master, that's servanthood. In other words, it's the things that we least want to do for God that we most occupy the role of a servant. The mark of the servant is that we put the will of God before our own just as Jesus did in the garden. Is your will daily being conformed to the will of your heavenly Father? That's what it means to be a servant. Second, I want you to realize these things that are true of you, you are called, beloved, and being kept. Not only true of you, but of all believers. Should have radical implications for the ways we treat each other. See, if God has seen everything about me, every sin I've committed, he's even seen every evil thought. He knows what I said when I stubbed my toe a few weeks ago, even if it was in the deepest places of my heart. And he loved me anyways. Shouldn't we extend that same love to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ? Who have not been sinned against by each other nearly as much as we have sinned against the one who loved us and gave himself for us? This truth of our identity in Christ is not only true for us, but it's true for how we see each other. When you're sitting there, and maybe there's a brother or sister in Christ that has absolutely driven you nuts, that person is called, beloved, and kept as well. Third, we must diligently work to keep our sense of identity solely rooted in Jesus Christ alone. There's been a movement in the last few years to add to our identity in Christ, identifying ourselves with our sins. So, for example, you may have heard in the last few years, and this has been popular in many uh, denominations, but it's affected our own denomination, the idea that you can be a gay Christian, even a celibate gay Christian. Why in the world would someone who has been called is beloved by God and is being kept for Christ Jesus then identify themselves with their sin? Why would we ever want to do it? God has taken our sin and thrown it into the sea. He has separated us as far as the east is from the west. We're to repent and leave our sin behind. And so rather than ever identifying ourselves by our sin, let us do far better to identify ourselves only with the finished work of Jesus Christ. Finally, I told you, for those of you who are, are on the outside looking in, 
Preaching doesn't make sense. It's, it's boring to you. You see other people are enthralled by it, but to you, it's just, it's Charlie Brown's teacher, isn't it? I told you I'd come back to this. I want to give you an invitation, not from me. I can't invite anybody into the kingdom, but the invitation of the Lord Jesus Christ, who says to you, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to Jesus. Nobody has ever come to Jesus carrying their hypocrisy and their sin and their shame and been turned away. He will receive you. Come and confess. Confess years of hypocrisy. Come confess hidden sin. He will receive you. But let me also give you a warning. If you harden your heart today, every successive time, the gospel is going to become even more foreign to you. It will be even more nonsense to you if you harden your heart now. When we harden our heart, we distance ourselves every time a little more and a little more and a little more. So what do you do if you know this is you? That your identity is not called beloved and kept, but you are yet dead in your sins, walking in darkness and alienated from God. What do you do? Repent and believe the gospel. Do not wait for next week because you nor I may make it to next week. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ right now and be saved. Let's pray together. Lord God in heaven, we are so grateful for the grace of the gospel that for some reason that defies any explanation, we are loved by the sovereign God of the universe. Lord, I pray that that would be our identity, not whether we're good moms or dads, not whether we're leaders in the church, not whether we have good reputations, but the thing, like Jude, the thing that matters most about us is servant of Jesus Christ. I pray that would be true of all of us today in Jesus' name.